Hi, and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. Yeah, and I am back because it's my week to do a topic. Yeah, finally not my problem. <laughs> wow, calling it a problem. No, 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 no. You do plenty, so. <laughs> you pain I was, in the butt. I was happy to subject you to all of my topics mm-hmm. while it happened. Because well, now we're back on my craziness. Now I don't have to worry. I don't have to think about video games or Japanese samurai or anything You're so like mean. That. <laughs> or that time you did the death poems. Yeah. Those were weird. <laughs> no, I think you're thinking of the gateless gate. Yes, that is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. The death poems are fine. The gateless gate was the weird one where I'm like sitting here like, am I in a philosophy 101 class? Uh-huh. <laughs> Anyways, let's try and get back into the show. So do we have any updates before we continue? Yes, we do. We, um, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Hannah, who sent us a wonderful email um, letting us know that... Uh, we helped her out with her paper for school somehow with my teapot dome scandal episode. So that like literally made my month. <laughs> oh God, I hope you did okay on that paper. You yeah. somehow gleaned 13 pages from our 30 minute episode. In her defense, she did say that it gave a lot of the background information. Yeah. So I feel like the 13, probably that was maybe like three pages because I'm pretty yeah. sure that's how long my notes were. <laughs> I mean, gen- those might have been four pages. Generally, yeah. my notes are three pages Mine on the Mine are somewhere between four and ten. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the longest I had were seven pages, but I think I made it like nine point font. <laughs> Cheater. Cheater. Yeah, there it was, was for Wicked, I think. Yeah, and it was the it was an episode where we were still both doing a topic, and I'm like, okay, Kylie's topic is just run an hour and ten minutes. What can I squeeze mine into? I'm sorry. I had a lot to say about Wicked. Uh-huh. I have a lot of feelings. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, I also want to do, um, well, actually, we also want to thank Hannah. She also submitted a topic for us in our form. If you look on our Twitter page, um, we have it as our pinned post right now. There is a Google form that you can fill out if you want to suggest a topic for us. And, uh, yeah, we'll try and get that scheduled in during whichever time period that it's supposed to happen in. Yeah, so, uh, Hannah, keep an eye out for that. Yeah. I have no idea when it'll come, but it'll come eventually. <laughs> eventually. Depends on uh, when when we find a relevant date for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, one last thing I want to plug right at the front that we do have a Ko-Fi, ko-fi.com forward slash halfwit history. Um, if you want to help support us in making the show, that would be super appreciated. And also, I just posted on Twitter asking if anyone had any ideas for what kind of extra content we could give people who yeah. donate because i am racking my brain to figure out what that is because we do a bunch of or we're we're starting to stock up on a bunch of extra content for our other podcast half was in filled crits yeah and i'm like how can we bring that flavor over this way yeah so if there's anything that you'd like to see us like branch into covering that would be you know just let us know yeah, or like different type of format. Like I feel like that's probably the best for like bonus episodes is like something that's not the normal feed, you know? Yeah. So if you think of anything kind of unique that you'd like like us to do or something you'd like to hear just anything. Doesn't oh, even God. really have to be on topic. It's just <laughs> if if there's bonus content that you want to have, I mean we can we can try and fill it. I just thought of something. 
What? Do you do you still have that recording of us all singing the song from The Witcher? Oh <laughs> Jesus! When we first got our oh, new mics. I was high as a kite, too. So that yeah, that was help. Kylie's first time trying edibles. <laughs> it was uh, fun. We went to our an arcade, and I think it was probably the best time I've ever had in an arcade. <laughs> uh-huh. So if you want to hear that deep cut, I guess you can uh, let us know by subscribing to our Ko-Fi, and then I guess maybe that'll make it on there at some point. You know what? Or, you know, us. To, I think you and I sang Defying Gravity because we basically treated it like... Um, a karaoke machine. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was fun. Anyways, it is definitely time to get into the topic. Yes, we please. have rambled too long, and it's my week, so I want to talk. Take your limelight. This episode is for the week of May 17th through 23rd, and my topic is going to take us back to May 17th of 1902. But first, I want to stop in just a little bit earlier in the spring two years prior where a crew of sea sponge harvesters are taking a day off after crossing the Sea of Crete. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Sea sponge harvesters? I said what I said. <laughs> okay. Yep. All right. I mean, I guess that's no weirder than the fact that my dad pulls crustaceans out of the ocean, so. Yeah, these people you just go in to get them instead of, uh, you know, they go down and they, they harvest, they get their little sickle and they, they chop them down. Wow, okay. <laughs> yep. I was not necessarily expecting that to be what I stumbled upon here, but anyways, here we are. <laughs> so, one member of the crew, Elias Tadaitis, must have been fairly passionate about his career, or at least antsy to get back to work, because during this break day, he threw on his canvas and copper diving suit to take a bottom-of-the-ocean stroll off the west coast of Antikythera, a small island south of Tripoli, Greece. Once Elias had descended approximately 45 meters, he began to resurface. Once back on the ship, he described to the rest of the crew that he found a bunch of corpses at the bottom. The captain decided that he needed to see this for himself, donned his diving gear, and headed on down. When he resurfaced, he brought with him an arm. Made of bronze. <laughs> oh, okay. Yep. Okay. I was like, how come I never heard of this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what happens next is a testament to how good of workers this crew was because they immediately set sail to finish their sponge harvesting season because the winds <laughs> died down and they could sail again. <laughs> Talk about work ethic and loyalty to the trade. They find literal treasure down there and just go, ah, oh, man, too bad the winds are back to normal. So let's uh, go do our job. <laughs> See, I would have been like, treasure! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the pirate in me. Yeah, so I was pretty sure that this would mean that they would lose out on their treasure, but thankfully for them, it wasn't the case. They returned to Point Glyphadia and to Cathera a few months later and started their exploration of this bronze statue-riddled seafloor. Once they got down there in a more expeditious fashion, <laughs> they discovered something much larger than they originally had assumed from their single bronze arm. The crew discovered the wreck of a large ship, potentially over 50 meters in length and 40 meters or less wide. Ooh. That's like half a football field. Yeah, and that's a pretty decent sized ship. Yeah. <clears throat> so once they were able to surface a few more artifacts, the crew called the authorities to report the find. And with the help of the Royal Hellenic Navy and the Greek Education Ministry, they spent the next year diving and recovering as much as they could. They found many small artifacts, a bronze lyre, uh, bronze statues, some fancy glasswork, a bunch of junk metal, presumably from the hull and other objects on board. 
and 36 marble statues of figures like Hercules, Hermes, Apollo, among others. Ah, that's a really cool. Big statue. Like, not yeah. like little like marble figurines, yeah, yeah, like yeah, marble no, like... statues. There were also three marble horse statues, but one got dropped in the recovery and shattered along <laughs> oh, the ocean no. floor. And I didn't find anything else about that one, so I guess they just left it behind. I would imagine that pe- not only like piecing together a statue would be painstaking work, I can only imagine trying to find all the little pieces of it scattered across the ocean floor would make it near impossible. <laughs> yeah. And I should probably mention before people start yelling at their podcatchers that this, sh- that this ship was in fact a Roman ship. So I'm not messing up the Greek slash Roman religion right now. Because the story that I'm telling right now is set in Greece, but then I right, said right, a right. whole bunch of Roman god names. Yeah. Well, you said the the lair or whatever, Lear, which is Lyre, like yeah. Lyre, yeah, which is like Romany. Right. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was a Roman ship in Greek waters. Yeah. So they like to invade. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. This one seemed to be filled with artsy stuff. So I f- oh, maybe they well, were stealing. Yeah, they could have been pillaging. <laughs> they were pillaging, is my guess. <laughs> yep. So unfortunately, the recovery and study of the ship was ended in 1901 when diver Gorgios Criticos uh, died while diving, and a few others became chronically ill from decompression sickness. Well, then do it right. Sorry, that was so mean. <laughs> it's 1900. <laughs> You're right. They were still wearing those weird like. Quintessential like Scooby-Doo like diversity. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. I forgive you this time. This time. Okay. So all of the artifacts that were collected were brought to the National Archaeological Museum in Athens, Greece, where many of them still reside today. So now that the collection was done, it was time to study everything that they found back at the museum. Some things that were learned from this were the ship's wood was elm, which supported the theory that it was a Roman ship, as that was a common material for their vessels. We learned that the elm that was recovered, that was definitely at least a portion of the ship, was dated back to around 220 BC. However, this is likely due to the age of the wood prior to being made into a ship, because the pottery and utensils found on board dated back to 80 and 50 BC, quite a few hundred years later. Yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit of a difference. Yeah. So now we're caught back up to our topic on May 17th of 1902. As archaeologists were starting to examine the scrap metal and bronze bits that were hauled up, one researcher named Valerio Stice was observing a hunk of bronze and embedded in it was a wheel. (laughs) But not just a wheel... It was a gear, about five inches in diameter. Looking closer, there were likely some inscriptions along the metal as well. Remember, we're saying that this ship is probably dated to 80 BC. Mm -hmm. The hunk of metal was carefully separated into 82 fragments for study. Four of these fragments contained unique gears, and many of the others had plenty of writing. One thing became clear... This was the oldest example of what would would be assumed to be clockwork ever found. Oh. Not only that, the other examples of early clockwork seem to be either after the 5th century, seen in examples in the Byzantine Empire and the Islamic world, meaning that potentially around the time of the destruction of the mechanism, clockwork was lost to the world for 500 years. Wow. Yeah, we have a 500-year gap in clockwork knowledge. That's wild. Yeah. 
So considering the clockwork of the Byzantine and the Islamic worlds was lost until it popped up again until the 14th century Europe, this is highly okay, wait, plausible. Yep. All right. <laughs> yep, I see. <laughs> I see how that happened. Yeah. So we have we have some <laughs> massive gaps in our understanding of clockwork mechanisms just would, throughout history. Yeah. I would also assume that there's probably very large gaps in our understanding of a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. It's just interesting that we have like one other touchstone of like... Byzantine and Islamic stuff from the 1400s and some some stuff around the 5th uh, century. And then now we're finding something B.C. that was clockwork. Yeah. And there's not many other examples at all. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, so I find this kind of funny because, like, humanity apparently keeps trying to ditch clocks somehow and they keep <laughs> finding their way back after centuries. I will, so, uh, I will admit to being one of those people who takes way too long to read an analog clock. Mm-hmm. I literally have to go 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 oh, <laughs> to boy. get around to the minutes. It's so bad. <laughs> I mean, that leads right into what I was going to mention next was, <laughs> you know, I wonder what's going to happen in another few centuries when the most common form of clock is digital. Uh-huh. <laughs> what if I we just lose clocks forever? <laughs> I will fully embrace the digital clock. We won't lose clocks. They're way too important. I mean, we still haven't fully ditched sundials either, so I guess I can't say anything. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so, however, I did mention that this was assumed to be clockwork. The true answer, which was revealed by close study of the fragmented inscriptions, is that the mechanism turned out to be a lot more similar to a calendar. So you lied to me. I mean, it's, <clears throat> it was kind of assumed to be clockwork. I mean, it still uses, like, <laughs> clockwork mechanism, like, it, it's gears, that right, are doing yeah. something, but instead of telling time, it's, I mean, it's telling a different kind of time that's it's not normally associated a, with a clock. A larger fraction of time. <laughs> yeah. So on the front panel, there were three inscriptions in Greek that say Pachon, Pani, and Epiphy. And these are closest resembling the months of May, June, and July, respectively. Mm. And if you are wondering why you haven't heard those words before, it's likely because this is a calendar that most people listening to this probably have never studied. They were months from the Sothic calendar, which was Egyptian, mm-hmm. and one of the earliest calendars to use a 365-day year, and it predates the understanding of a leap year. Yeah. So these three Egyptian months were on the outside ring of the face. There was also another ring that was divided into 12 even segments, wink, wink, mm-hmm. furthering our assumption that the device was likely a calendar, but the inscriptions above those 12 segments were not months but the Greek zodiac. Hmm. Not only were the zodiac present, but also within the zodiac wedges were points with labels for when the zodiac was rising, as well as other stars like the Pleiades, Orion, Arcturus, etc. were rising and setting. Ooh, that's cool. All I'm thinking of is the map in the library in, the av- in Avatar. The oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm literally envisioning that that's what this is. <laughs> well, so the, this thing is, remember, the gear that they have is only like five inches across in like the, the whole box. So a that, mini version. Yeah, the whole box <laughs> that they found was, uh, I, I'm, I feel dumb for not writing it down here, but it was like, you know, a, a foot by like half a foot deep kind of a thing. It was like a shoe box is what they oh, described okay. it about a, a bunch of times. So what we're starting to get a picture of is rather than a clock or a calendar, the device could be an astrolabe. An astrolabe is a tool that's used to note the position of celestial bodies. And the etymology literally breaks down to star taker in both Greek and Arabic. Astrolabes were also known to have existed around the dating of this device. 
As we look into more detail at the remains, there is also evidence that there was both a clock hand for the sun and moon and the phases of the moon. Really cool is that the phases of the moon were assumed to have been tracked with a half black, half white ball that was on another gear system that would spin the ball to represent the phases of the moon. It also had additional hands for the five observable celestial planets at the time, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the device tracked their positions relative to the other stars listed on the zodiac slash calendar dial. So that sounds pretty complicated. Yeah, it just keeps getting more complicated <laughs> as like they keep digging up the different inscriptions yeah. on this thing. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier that there were multiple fragments that had unique gearing. This was because there were gear systems that reached to the back of the device as well. Taking a look at those fragments, we have inscriptions with multiple spirals, hands, and more. What was tracked on the back of the device were the year, the metonic, saros, calipic, and exoligmos cycles, as well as a games indicator. The year is self-explanatory. The metonic cycle tracked when the phases of the moon would show up on the same day in different years. The calipic cycle was an improvement on the metonic cycle. And the sorrow cycle was the tracking specifically of eclipses. And the exoligmos was able to tell you the properties of each eclipse. The games indicator was a circle divided in four that would be linked to the year cycle and say what year was a crown, minor, or Olympic game year. Oh. So there's only one last piece to the puzzle before we really know what this Antikythera mechanism was. The hands and gear could have all been set and tracked and updated manually, but a hole on the front of the device suggests otherwise. While the part that interacts with the opening was never recovered, it is clear that this is where a crank handle was meaning the operator of the mechanism was able to set a year and then turn the crank to get the results of other various indicators for that year. This automated calculation is what gives the Antikythera mechanism the title of the world's first computer at more than 2,000 years before computers were a thing. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Wild that, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> as they're studying this, they're like, oh, it's, a, it's, it's a clock. It's a clock. Oh, it's a calendar. Actually, it's an <laughs> astrolabe. It's it's looking at where, like, the position of things are. And then eventually. Oh, wait, we, it's a computer. Yeah. And then eventually we get to it and it's like, it's not actually measuring any of these things. It's computing them. Yeah. <laughs> and it theoretically was very good at what it did for the knowledge that the people of the time had. The way the gearing worked even sped up the movement of the planets, sun, and moon at different times of the year while cranking. At this point in time, the people who would have made the mechanism would not have known that the planets orbited on an elliptical pattern. But what they did know from observing the celestial bodies was that they did cross the skies faster at different times of year. So what they were observing but not comprehending was the very distance of the bodies from sun due to the elliptical orbit, and they were calculating for it. Without even knowing what it was. Right. That's pretty nifty. Yeah. So I did say theoretically earlier because the construction of the gears left something to be desired. <laughs> Being hand-carved, the gear teeth were triangular, which is not optimal for meshing, nope. and the teeth were not always the same size as the other teeth on the gear. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah, which is also not optimal if you couldn't guess that for yourself. <laughs> People who studied the mechanism noted on faithful recreations of the device that planets could be up to 30 or more degrees away from their true position at times, <laughs> and Whoops. the model needed to be manually reset every four calculated years due to the leap year. Ah, yep, that would do it. Yep. Mm. But making... 
improved theoretical models of the mechanism yielded some interesting results of being very accurate. For example, the Calipic pointer estimated after one turn of the crank was 27,758.8 days, and then the theoretical calculated was only 0.8 days off. Oh, okay. So if the gears were actually made with like good gears and didn't have all this backlash and like mm-hmm. abnormalities, the construction of the mechanism would have actually been pretty accurate. That's... So it's like they they were just limited by the tools of the time, not by the knowledge of how they were doing what they were doing. Right. Like they knew what to do, but it was the execution that was lacking. Right. So again, the model was inaccurate. Um <laughs> And some estimate that at times it could be even a few weeks incorrect, but still pretty impressive for a 2,000-year-old computer. Yeah. Yep. I'll give them that. (laughs) Yep. And that pretty much covers the Antikythera mechanism. As for the Antikythera shipwreck, it was abandoned after the initial exploration was halted until around 1953 when Jacques Cousteau rediscovered the wreck briefly. That sounds about right. Mm -hmm. He then returned in 1973 to see what he and a crew of archaeologists could uncover. They ended up pulling up over 300 artifacts from the wreckage, including more parts of the Antikythera mechanism. Oh. They found more ship pieces, more pottery, coins, and even some remains of the crew. Oh, that, okay. So we that, circled see, all the way back around. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Every time you said remains of like the clockwork mechanism, yep. I was picturing bodies uh-huh. and then had to remind myself that no, we're talking about like, mechanical remains and i'm like nope remains will always mean dead bodies yeah (laughs) so anyways we started with uh potential corpses which weren't real and then actually we circled back around to actually finding corpses just kidding they were there (laughs) Uh uh-huh so then after that it sat untouched again until 2012 when it was rediscovered by the woods hole oceanographic institute after getting permission to dive the entire circumference of antikythera The rediscovery of the wreck and a few-week exploration into its contents yielded funding to get 3D maps of the wreck in 2014 and 2015. And in 2016, a confirmed 2,000-plus-year-old human skull was found fairly intact. More specifically, I guess, the part of your skull behind your ear is very good for DNA extraction. Yes, yeah. And that was totally intact. Oh! So... These recent explorations continued into 2019, where they found a bunch of objects that we've mentioned before, along with two objects described as mysterious. A bronze disc depicting a bull that doesn't seem to match up with anything else recovered, as well as a ruby sarcophagus lid. What? Yeah. So there's some mummy out there without its lid? I guess. Oh, no. (laughs) So, due to the size and location of the wreck, we will likely be revisiting it for many years to come. Yes. Progress has always been slow since its location is not large enough to allow for large submersibles and generally dangerous for the divers in some areas at different depths. Who knows what other mysteries are hidden in this extremely wealthy shipwreck, or what other pieces of the Antikythera mechanism we might find that could change our understanding and scope of it yet again. I now suddenly have a des- desire to change my career to be a archaeological diver i could go for a sea sponge harvester and find these things yeah you become the sea sponge harvester and you find the stuff and then i'll be the like archaeological like researcher who goes down and like recovers everything like professionally works for me 
I desire a career change that is directly related to what I do now, essentially. Just a little more involved. Yeah, a little bit more hands-on than I'm used to, but I won't object to that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, all I got for the topic. Nice. Now time for our call to action. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can also find us on Instagram, but I haven't posted anything there yet. But it exists if you want to follow there for when eventually we do post something. Um, And that's also Halfwit History. Um, You can send us an email at halfwitpod at gmail.com. Yeah, if uh, you want to send any, well, I guess we have the form now more for the like topic ideas. But if you want to say, reach out and say hi, tell us if you're enjoying the show, um, any suggestions or comments, we would absolutely love to hear from you. And uh, topic suggestions, even if you don't have Twitter. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. That's the point of mentioning the the email still. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Send us your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And make Kylie's day like uh, Hannah did that we mentioned at the beginning. Jonathan texts me and goes, you want to answer, you want to respond to our our first like fan email? And I was like, do I ever? Uh (laughs) (laughs) There were a lot of like crying, like happy emojis. It was, it was, it was a time. So thank you again, Hannah. Yes. Thank you, Hannah. And also thank you to the fishermen for the use of our theme song, Another Day. And you can find a link to their SoundCloud down in our show notes. Yes, and we both made the gesture that time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you'd like to support what we do, like I mentioned at the top, you can support us at ko-fi.com at slash history. <laughs> slash, not at. <laughs> not at slash history. Are you ready for fun facts? I am ready for fun facts. Um, I will go first. Mwahaha. So on May 17th, 1824, the diaries of Lord Byron were burnt by six of the poet's friends at the office of John Murray in London. And this is sometimes described as the greatest crime in literary history. Mm-hmm. I saw that one and I knew you were going to pick it. <laughs> Just imagine the like sheer amount of like scandal and salacious material that had to be in there. Mm-hmm. Like, oh. I can't even imagine like that's like liter- that's like a literature history like a treasure, but it's gone. Uh-huh. Forever. <laughs> okay, so my fun fact is on May 18th of 1972, at a night when the bars closed down, a woman walked through a silent town. She loved a man who's not around, and she can still hear him say that Brandy, you're a fine oh my girl. God. <laughs> what a good wife you will be. No. Yep. <laughs> Brandy, no. You're a Fine Girl is released by the pop rock band Looking Glass. Oh, God. Anytime I hear that song, all I can think of is Gardens of the Galaxy. Uh-huh. Anyways, that's been our show. As always, I've been your half-wit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next week. Bye. Bye.